Revealing Voices is a mental health podcast that is faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. Host Tony Roberts and guest hosts with lived experience take you on a journey of revealing voices, working for justice, crying out for healing, speaking the truth in love, and expressing beauty in art. I'm Kevin Early Bird Early, technical producer and sound mixer, and I want to welcome you to Revealing Voices. Hello, this is Revealing Voices with Tony Roberts, and I'm here with Judge Tim Fall. Judge Fall is a, an author in addition to a superior court judge in the state of California. His book, Running for Judge, and Tim, would you tell us the subtitle? Sure, and, and it's just Tim, please. The uh, subtitle is uh, Campaigning on the Trail of Despair, Deliverance, and Overwhelming Success, which has a double meaning for the book since the book is a, a mental health memoir that is draped over a judicial reelection. And that subtitle applies to both of those aspects. Very good. And I just had the chance to read it and then uh, listen to it on my way home from a Mother's Day gathering today. And it, it very much is a retelling of the campaign but like you said, draped over, there's the underpinning of a story of bout with anxiety that Tim faced. And uh, we're going to be talking some about that. So in your book, Running for Judge, you write about bouts with anxiety when you ran opposed in 2008. Did you have any indication of a struggle before this? When I look back now, I can see other things. And it was anxiety and depression uh, that I dealt with, I would consider that uh, 2008 campaign a uh, mental health crisis with the depression and anxiety. Uh, I actually had suicidal thoughts, not just suicidal ideations like, oh, what would it be if I were dead, but actual thoughts of, of suicide and how that would be a way out. Um, and then anxiety that just ramped me up. And I didn't get a diagnosis of having a disorder until I was in the middle of that. But I look back to years before that and then years after, and sure, I can see things that fit right squarely within the diagnosis uh, that I received. And uh, I, I can say, sure, my anxiety disorder did not come into being in 2008, and it hasn't gone away since then. It, it's just always been with me. I finally had a name for it, though, uh, in 2008. And you know, people who listen to your show and will watch video, they may not understand how a judge could have an election campaign. Uh, Tony, if I could quickly give a, a description of that process. Absolutely. In California, we have judges as elected positions, although most of us become a judge not by being elected to the office, but by being appointed to fill out an unfinished term. And uh, there are six-year terms. So I was appointed for a judge who had actually been elevated to a, a higher court. So it opened up a spot, and that's what I got. I was 35 years old at the time, which is pretty young in California to become a judge, probably anywhere. And then that was back in 1995. And then in 96, uh, nobody ran against me. People usually don't run against judges in California. Uh, 2002, nobody ran against me. Uh, 2008, somebody decided to run against me. 
And it's very unusual. We have about 1,700 judges in California, 400 and some odd which who are up for re-election every two years because we cycle through in, in these two-year increments for six-year terms. So a third of us are up. And of those 400 judges who are up for re-election, about 20 of them will face an election challenge. So it's an insignificant uh, statistic unless you're the judge who's being challenged, in which case it's extremely significant. In 2008, somebody decided to do that and run against me. And you write in the book that it wasn't as if this was, I mean, it felt like a very real challenge to you. Statistically, again, your chances were very good that you would win, but uh, that didn't matter with respect to your anxiety. It didn't. Yeah, every two years, as I said, you'll have 20 or 25 judges who will get challenged. And every two years, almost invariably, all of them win re-election, and usually by sizable amounts. Um, Okay, spoiler alert, I won re-election, I'm still a judge. Okay, got that part out there in case people are on the edge of their seat. (laughs) What is this guy? Is he going to be able to prevail or not? Uh, So I won. but And that's what everybody told me. Oh, you're going to win this thing. But occasionally judges lose. And for me, I found that the anxiety uh, was overwhelming with a lot of the just horrible symptoms that come with an anxiety disorder. It's not just feeling anxiousness, as people might think. It's sleeplessness, uh, weight loss. I lost 40 pounds uh, during the election season. And uh, as I said, sleeplessness, racing thoughts that would invade my ability to do anything. And also the depression and getting so depressed that I would essentially just curl up by myself and not be able to interact uh, with anyone. And that's what I was experiencing when this challenge came at me. Uh, And I'd never had anything that was at that level before. And I, I would have people say, oh, well, why are you so anxious about this? I don't know why it's bothering you so much. You're going to win. Sure, all of that makes sense uh, when you think about it like that. But the reason is my brain doesn't work the way that other brains work. I have a, a disorder And uh, my doctor was able to diagnose me with generalized anxiety disorder with depressive episodes. He told me at the time he could have diagnosed me with depression. I fit both diagnoses, but he said, I'm not going to put depression down on your chart. I'm going to just put down generalized anxiety disorder. The treatment's the same either way. And (laughs) then uh, with this diagnosis, all the other things, I physically got very sick. I came down with pneumonia. I was out for three weeks, couldn't go to work, nothing like that. And it was just, it was, it was a very, very hard time that my doctor and I had to address. And we did all the things that you're supposed to do. Talked about how to care for myself, how to take the right medication and finding the right medication because the first one didn't work. So we had to try another one and that takes a while. And then it finally worked and still didn't make me all better. So when people say, how come this bothered you so much? It's because my brain doesn't work like other people's does. And, you know, people say things like, uh, well, mental illness is all in your head, uh, to which, as you know, (laughs) I reply, yes, and a heart attack is all in your chest. Go see a doctor either way, because my brain disorder is that the chemicals and electrical impulses in the brain don't move from one cell to another like they're supposed to. 
Uh, it is not that I can't come to grips with things because I'm not thinking about them correctly. It's because my brain does not operate the way that a brain without this disorder operates. So what sets me off wouldn't make sense to almost everybody else. But when you have a disorder, this is what happens. As a believer, I found your sections in your book about faith and your personal faith, as well as uh, how your faith is expressed in church and and so forth, uh, very illuminating. Um, if you would, I'd like you to read a section where this panic attack or anxiety panic attack comes to you in prayer. I, sure, and and I'm glad you used the phrase panic attack because. Panic attack is actually not one of the usual symptoms of a generalized anxiety disorder. While it is with other types of anxiety diagnoses, panic attacks are common with some. With mine, it is not. Um, it's called generalized anxiety disorder because it's not based on some event like post-traumatic stress. There is a trauma, can be a long-going trauma, it can be uh, a single event. Um, and there are other types where things happen and that's why you're in that situation now. For me, it's not. It's just that's how my brain is made. And so panic attacks, although I have had one back when I was in junior college, the kids call that community college nowadays. But back when I was young, that was a junior college. So I, I had one back then and I write about it a little bit in, in the book too. But when this came along, I, I yeah, I, I was trying very much to not ignore my faith. I, I relied on God. And sometimes that took conscious effort and sometimes it didn't. Relying on God was something that I uh, was in a good habit of doing already. So let me see if I can get to the right thing here. Okay. So this is going to bed the night I found out I uh, was being challenged. I, I found out that afternoon, go home, tell my wife, and it's bedtime, lights out, going to sleep. And I wrote, uh, we'll handle this, I thought, which is why I was utterly unprepared for what happened the next morning. The alarm went off at 4.15, like usual. Liz, my wife, Liz was already up and in the room down the hall doing some Bible study while I made the bed. She came in and we prepared to say prayers together, just like we do every morning before heading out to the gym. We knelt on opposite sides of the bed. If I had been asked about it, I'd have said up to that point that this was just another morning. Then I opened my mouth to pray. Father. And then nothing. Silence. My head dropped down between my arms, my forehead pushing into the comforter I just moved out across the mattress when making the bed. Silence. Nothing. Then something. My shoulders shook. My lungs expanded with a huge indraw of breath, and I cried. Not quietly crying tiny tears into the bed, not quietly crying softly stifled whimpers. Huge heaving sobs. Huge heaving sobs that shook me from my knees on the floor up through my belly and into my chest up to my head and then down my arms as I pressed them into the bed. Uncontrollable crying. I don't mean I tried to control it, but found I couldn't. 
I had no thought of control. My body was in charge, not my thinking. I didn't hear Liz get up from her side of the bed. I didn't feel the mattress shift as she stopped leaning against it. I didn't know she was coming around to me. The first I knew was when she knelt down and wrapped me up in her arms. Then she prayed. God be with Tim, she began. Liz's words washed over me, her arms holding me, her prayer encouraging me. My sobs stopped. My breathing eased. She asked for God's presence to comfort me, strengthen me, calm me. Then she said, Amen. I stayed silent. Thank so if you read the book or listen to it on Audible, I'm the narrator that way too, or I, some people like Kindle, it's there too. I did the narration for Audible. I didn't do anything special for Kindle. I, my, I don't know how that works. My publisher just sent it to him. So anyway, if you uh, read the book, you find that the hero in that book is Liz, my wife. She read it after I published it. I did not have her read drafts. And uh, so she read it after I published it. In fact, I was away at a writer's conference that weekend and she was reading it while I was gone. It had just come out. And uh, as I'm driving home from the conference, she said, I finished your book. I think you gave me too much credit. And I said, not even by half. No. <laughs> this, yeah, she... She was incredible. You talk about God bringing people into your lives uh, and those who can come alongside you. That is exactly what was happening uh, yeah. with her and, and helping me through all this. You had a really you have a really faithful bond. Not every believer in your book is as compassionate as your wife lives. Some don't get it, <laughs> and I I like you to shift and 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 share the section where. Um, a church member doesn't quite get it. Oh yeah, this is this is a brief passage, but it was pretty typical of some of the things that people would say to me. So I'm I'm actually going to start with my friend Scott, who was uh, one of the pastors at church, and he and I are the same age. Uh, our kids grew up together. We would go on vacations together. He was just a, a super friend, and I'll start with that briefly, and then go into the opposite. <laughs> A type of situation with somebody at church. So regarding Scott, this is the guy who, when I was going through another crisis, once offered to cancel a vacation he was about to leave on. Do you want me to stay here with you? He asked. This is the kind of friend Scott is to me. When it came to the campaign, Scott was a brick, checking in on me and praying with me and for me throughout. He had the coming alongside comforter thing nailed, and I was blessed by all he did. Others weren't so good at being supportive. How's it going with the campaign? One person asked at church soon after my doctor put me on the anti-anxiety meds. It's killing me. I'm not sure I said those words as much as choked them out. You can't say that. He looked shocked. Don't let anyone know. You need to present yourself positively confident 100% of the time. Yeah, I said. Uh, thanks. I felt chastised which I think was his intent. Mm. Yeah, some, some of us just don't quite get it. You know, they talk about the ministry of presence or the gift of being present. Mm. And Scott was present. Mm -hmm. This other guy, physically, he was in the same area that I was standing in, 
talking with me, but he was not present. He, he, he wasn't giving me the gift of presence. And you were very generous to give your, I, I, you can't really identify this one man as, as your church, but you're willing to give people the benefit of the doubt and find support within the church where you could. Right. Some people who have mental health challenges don't quite, they, they aren't quite able to do that. And they have one encounter with someone who doesn't get it. And that becomes the church for them. Right. Yeah. Happily, just starting off the bat, I had Liz and Scott. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I, of course, Liz is also married to me. And um, as you probably recall that quote, that home is where you go when you have to, and when you do, they have to take you in. I think yes, I read that Robert quote in your Ross. book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes. yeah. I, and so Liz, you know, sure. You're thinking, well, she's your wife. She has to do that. But if you read the book, it's way beyond what you would think spouses would be able to do for one another. And then there was Scott and there were others who were just awesome at coming alongside me, uh, both in the church and in my among my colleagues as well. Mm. So I'd like to move a little further in this in your story beyond mm -hmm. the election to the point that you did share your diagnosis broadly beyond a closed circle of confidence. And you were still in office at the time, right. correct? What and, sure, there? and I am right now, still. Yeah. yeah, right. What year was it that you shared your diagnosis publicly? Let's see. Beyond my doctor and my wife. Nobody knew for 10 years. So it was probably late 2018 that I started talking about it as, yes, this is an experience that I have had as well. And then moving into 2019, which is when I wrote the book. And then, you know, what happens when you write books is you hope that they get published. <laughs> and there's a lot of rejections that authors get. But I was able to uh, hear back from a publisher uh, who said, yeah, they wanted to offer me a contract on it. Well, once you sign a contract, the launch of that book is completely out of your hands. They decide when it is going to uh, get out there uh, in public, the publishing date. And so there it was 2019, late 2019, and I'm signing this contract and I'm thinking I'm up for re-election next year. So 2008, I won, got 76 and a half percent of the vote, but not that anybody keeps track of numbers, right? So <laughs> there was an overwhelming return to office um, or continuation in office. That was 2008, 2014, no challengers. 2020 is my next election cycle after signing the contract in late 2019. And I'm thinking, I don't know uh, if someone might use this as a, an opportunity to run against me. Hey, that judge has a diagnosed mental illness. Let's get him off the bench. Vote for me instead. But I just decided that's fine. If they want to make it into a, a campaign issue, then I will address that. Because the real point of talking about this, the reason that I talk to you and I talk to groups and I, I just did two of them uh, a week and a half ago, uh, last Saturday, actually, and then a uh, week before that with a couple of groups uh, where I am trying to uh, remove the stigma of uh, mental health care 
I don't like to say I remove the stigma of mental illness because that kind of sounds like you're trying to remove the stigma of cardiac illness or right. kidney illness or something. I mean, why, why is there even a stigma about it? Mm-hmm. But yes, mental illness has a stigma. Trying to seek mental health care has a stigma attached to it. And I'm trying to remove that so that people who find themselves uh, not just under stress, but to the point of being diagnosable clinically was something that a doctor would say, this is your diagnosis, uh, that they would say, oh, well, look, Tim's a judge. He does his job and it doesn't keep him from being able to do all of that. Why am I trying to hide it? I should go get care just like Tim did. And that, so that's what I'm really getting at. And I'll talk to these groups and uh, sometimes someone will come up to me. Uh, I was talking to the uh, uh, conference at the California Judges Association and one of the judges came up afterwards well, it's good that you can talk about it, but I'm not in a position to go around talking about how my health is. And I don't, it's not the point. I, I don't want you to go talk about your health. I talk about my health so you don't have to. I want mm. you to go get help. I want you to talk to your doctor about it. And you know, the thing about doctors, and I think people lose sight of this, they actually get paid to listen to you, tell them what's going on in your life. So when you go in and they say, how are you doing? It's not the time to say, oh, I'm fine. How are you? It's the time to say, these are the things I'm dealing with right now, physically, emotionally, mentally. They, it's, it's just wild. They get money for sitting there and listening to us and then coming up with solutions. This is exactly what they're paid to do. So yeah, why not talk to your doctor about it? It's one of the things that intrigues me in your story. And I've faced this a little bit myself and sharing my diagnosis of bipolar, you get support from people who have quietly struggled, but there are those who may have their own struggles that challenge you. And you you had some people that really didn't think you should have said anything. <laughs> what, was, yeah. what was their grounds on? Well, a couple, I, both both in my profession and uh, from people who don't know much about the law. So for people who don't have real familiarity with the law, uh, except what they may see on the news or TV shows, I have to tell people all the time, Judge Judy, not a real judge. I mean, she used to be, but you know, that she's not. Judge Steve Harvey, not even close to being a real judge. Okay, folks, those, those are TV shows. Uh, so if that's where people get their judge stuff from, is from watching Law & Order or reading the newspaper, um, yeah, so some of them, I had a couple of different times when people said, well, you know, it's just not proper for a judge to admit having a mental illness. That's unethical and you should stop talking about it. And I think, you know, I've been teaching judicial ethics in California for over 20 years. I've taught thousands of judges, the canons of judicial ethics in the uh, California code of judicial conduct, which is such a strong code Uh, that violations of it can lead to a judge being removed from the bench. All right, so this is real stuff. Nowhere in there, Tony, is anything about you can't admit you have a mental illness. It's just not in there. But, you know, people, they have this image of judges. And so they think, oh, no, you shouldn't be talking about that. You know, okay. And then one time, again, I was talking to uh, a group of judges. I was at this conference and talking to the group. One of the judges came up afterwards and I had just done an hour long interview 
expanding on all of this and talking about how we need to remove the stigma and how stress is something that all judges face, but that there are a number of judges who have mental illnesses that are, at, if they haven't been diagnosed, they could be anxiety, depression, other types of uh, mental health issues, uh, not on top of just the stress that all 1700 judges <laughs> face. It's just huge. So anyway, <laughs> I just got done talking about all of that. Judge comes up afterwards. He leans into me and he whispers, have you heard the phrase, loose lips sink ships? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> he said, you just want to be careful who you talk to about this type of thing. You never know what they're going to do with that information. And all I could think of was, oh, gee, I guess I shouldn't have published a book on it. <laughs> And have it out there for everybody to see. I shouldn't talk to this group. I shouldn't. I mean, I've talked to mental health groups. I've talked to lawyer groups. I've, I've talked, you know, community staff. Uh, you know, so I thought, okay, I think you missed the part about trying to remove the stigma. <laughs> so, I mean, he meant it kindly, but just completely missed the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things I really like in your book is the chapter about self-care and mm. uh, you detail the the two that stood out for me was that even in the midst of your campaign that was very stressful you just forced yourself to exercise in the morning and then I think that's when you your wife started getting you out to walk the dog is that right what, what right was the things you did for self-care so, yeah I, so I found out that I was going to be challenged in uh, January. We had a June uh, election date. So I found out in January, uh, early February, I get the pneumonia diagnosis. My health had been getting worse and worse and worse from the time I found out and then the pneumonia diagnosis and going on some pretty strong medication to take care of that. And as I said, I was out for three weeks. I couldn't go to work. I was so tired. I'd never been so tired as when I had pneumonia. And it's funny, I've talked to other people who've had it too, and they say, absolutely. It is the most fatiguing, draining illness that they've ever had. And so I didn't exercise much <laughs> in that three weeks, but then I started getting back into it and I was forcing myself into it. Also, my wife then said, you know, I usually walk the dog in the afternoons before you get home from work. What if I put that off until after dinner? And so after dinner, every night, we would walk the dog just in our neighborhood, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, we might talk about stuff that had gone on during the day with uh, her job or mine. We would not talk about the campaign. We would talk about other stuff, what the kids were up to, family, you know, but not the campaign. Those moments just out walking the dog were not campaign time. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, since you now openly discuss your struggles, what helps and uh, what hindrances have you discovered? Hmm. Okay. Uh, the, the things that uh, help are having conversations. Uh, I've got a couple of friends who are close enough. These are friends who are on the bench. So if I say this thing about work has stressed me out, then they can relate because they're judges. But they also are people I have known for a long time, 15 to 20 years as fellow judges, and I trust them. So if I 
send them a text and say, do you have time to talk now? And one of them will get back to me. Yes. And then I'll just talk and I'll, if, if it's a really bad day when the anxiety is ramping up again, then they just listen. And uh, if it has to do with something else, that's also going on at work that might be pushing me uh, along, but that's not necessarily the case. You know, I can, I can start to ramp up with anxiety with not a single obvious stressor happening. I can be at home on a Saturday afternoon and start to feel the anxiety ramp up and I will take some of my anxiety medicine. I'm on a, a medication now, unlike what I was taking back in 2008, where you have to uh, start with small amounts and you build up the dosage and it can take two to three weeks before you actually start feeling the effect of the medication. I'm on one now, which is very fast acting, but it's also very short lived. Like the other one is what's called a maintenance medication. You take it once a day, it lasts for 24 hours. You just take it once a day and, and it maintains you. But if you don't maintain it, then it, it can be pretty bad again. So the one I'm on now, because my anxiety is not constant, like it was back then, I never had a moment that I did not feel anxious it, and, and the anxiety and anxious, not in the sense where a lot of people use it. Oh, I'm so anxious about the test I'm going to take tomorrow. I'm anxious about my job interview. I'm anxious about meeting my prospective in-laws. You know, those, that's not the anxiousness that a person with anxiety has. The anxiety is, is different from that. And back then, I never had a moment that I did not have that at least low-level buzz of anxiety if my meds were really working and I had nothing else going on to trigger me or just off the charts you know, going to bed at my regular bedtime, waking up at midnight and staring at the ceiling with racing thoughts until the sun came up and then finally getting out of bed. So it just, now that's not the case. I don't have my anxiety at that level right now. So I have this one where I just take a pill and it lasts for about six hours and it knocks it out. You, you mentioned though, that you, you noticed in the book, I talked about my dad getting injured, traumatic brain injury. And I had to be the one who was going to essentially be his primary person. Uh, moved him from the Bay Area up here near where we are, wonderful facility and all of that. But when he was, you know, his surgery and rehab, all sorts of things going on, we didn't know if he was going to survive the surgery. And then all that goes into taking the steps to move him up closer to us, I felt the anxiety coming on. And I went back onto maintenance medication immediately. Got a hold of my doctor about a week into this, not even that four or five days into it. I said, I can feel this happening. I need to talk to you about medication and uh, went back onto it for a long time. And then like maybe a year. And then for about a year or so, I didn't, maybe a little more. But then the last few months of my dad's life, when again, there was a whole lot going on and caring for him and seeing his decline, I went back on it, a maintenance dose. And that's what I did. Took my medication every day and, and stayed on it in order to be able to handle all of that. So one final question I have, and then I'll open it up to anything you want to say that, that I haven't covered, but you mentioned near the end of the book that um, in a way, in hindsight, certainly not in the midst of, of the struggle, but in hindsight, there, there could be a benefit to someone with a mental illness in serving God and, and in their vocation as a judge, as 
other professions. You mentioned due process. Is that do I have that right? Do you do you, do you want to say more about that? What what might be helpful for you in terms of functioning as a judge? It, my wife was the one who actually threw this insight uh, at me toward the end of the campaign. And she said, well, maybe going through this is going to help you to recognize some of the things that people in your courtroom go through, because it can be a person who is uh, charged with a crime, but also has a mental illness issue going on, could be one of the attorneys, could be a witness. I see it now a lot where I can recognize uh, that stress is becoming overwhelming. And somebody might actually have something that uh, is diagnosable as well. And you talk about the due process. Due process does not allow me to say, okay, now which one of you two in this uh, lawsuit has a mental illness and which one doesn't? Oh, you have one? Well, so do I, therefore I rule in your favor. You know, that is not how it works. Uh, but it is a matter of, if I see somebody who looks like they're getting overwhelmed, I am uh, more quick to look on that as something that needs to be accommodated with something like, <laughs> would you like us to take a break? Uh, would you like me to, if I've got a whole bunch of cases I'm dealing with that morning, I might say, would would you like to uh, have me take a different case right now and I'll get back to yours in a moment, that sort of thing. And uh, so I can I can do that. And as judges, we're actually required to accommodate people in the courtroom for a number of things. It's in the canons of ethics that we are required to take the steps necessary to make sure that the people who are in a courtroom have the opportunity to participate fully. And uh, whether that's a person who is a witness, uh, could be an attorney, and some of them are obvious. You know, if someone comes into court and has a hearing impairment, uh, then we, if, if it's appropriate, uh, have a sign language interpreter, or we have these other devices that are, they're called assistive listening devices. And I had one older gentleman who was saying, I really can't hear very well in a situation like this. He was there for jury selection, big open room, of course, lots of people in it. He said, I'm just not hearing things very well. And my hearing aid isn't picking it up. I said, oh, well, let's try this assistive listening device. And he puts it on and I said, so now are you able to understand what I'm saying? He said, this is better than any hearing aid I've ever owned. <laughs> you know, so we we do that. So if you think, okay, well, you'll do that for people who have a hearing impairment um, and for other types of things. Well, we do it for a lot of reasons, uh, including something like someone who may be overwhelmed by stress and uh, reasonable accommodations. We don't somehow do things for them, but if there's an accommodation we can give, then we do. So is there anything I haven't asked that you would like to point out from your book or from your journey? Yeah, I would say that mental illness, uh, mental health diagnoses, however you want to put it. I had one person recently say, I don't like the phrase mental illness. I don't think you should use it. And I thought, okay, but since I'm the one who has this condition, don't I get to be the one who chooses my phrasing? Isn't, isn't that how this works? <laughs> I didn't put it to her quite that way because I thought, okay, I understand you're being sensitive and, and all that. Um, you know, so, but yeah, whether you want to call it mental health diagnosis, you want to call it uh, mental wellness, uh, you want to call it uh, mental illness. Um, so there are a lot of people uh, out there who uh, either have had, presently have, or will have anxiety or depression, which are just two aspects of mental health, not to mention all of the other things that 
could go into this. The pre-pandemic statistics were one in four, one in five, one in four, depending on what study you were looking at. One in four people in America will have, presently have, or have had uh, anxiety or depression or both. So for anybody who would say, well, I don't know anybody with a mental illness, the, the response really is, you do, you just may not know that that person has a mental illness because one in four people are in that situation. So that's part of it. And the studies that have been coming out since 2021 are showing that the numbers are much higher, uh, 40 to 60% at uh, clinical anxiety or depression now. And that number may go down perhaps uh, as we get away from all of that, but the numbers are big. <laughs> and so, you know, if, if there were something else going on, I don't know, let's say some sort of virus that was running rampant through a uh, nation, you would hope that there would be steps taken uh, for people to get the right care, um, like vaccines and things like that. Um, I mean, I've got my COVID vaccines, and I, I do that because I trust my doctor, who uh, has given me a lot of great advice <laughs> over the years, and I never came down with it, yay. And uh, so same thing with mental health. You would hope that this would be something that people would want to address uh, medically. And so that's, and when I say medically, you know, there's a lot of things that I do that are what people hear about for just stress management anyway. I work out six days a week. Um, I try to eat right. I have the time away from other things that I need to, taking breaks and I, I do a lot of those things that are the self-care type things because I'm in a, a particular position where if I don't, it's going to really throw me off. But everybody can help manage stress through a lot of these things. You don't necessarily need the medication. You know, in fact, for someone with a diagnosis, medication doesn't work for everybody with a diagnosis. Counseling or therapy doesn't work for everybody. And, uh, you know, exercise is not necessarily the answer for everybody. Uh, well, yeah, get exercise. <laughs> and try to stay <laughs> healthy and active, right? Good nutrition is always nice. Um, so th these are the things that I, I point out that this is all just medical type stuff and health type stuff. And, you know, when I said earlier that for someone who says mental illness is all in your head, I say, yes, and a heart attack is all in your chest. And actually neither of those are true. Um, when someone has a heart attack, it affects how their brain works. When someone has a brain thing going on, it affects how their body works. It's all just health. It's your personal well-being that we're talking about here. And, you know, let's take care of each other. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you so much for speaking out and uh, sharing your story with judges and people who are interested in campaigns and mental health and mental illness. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. Can I mention one other thing? Uh, yeah. For those who heard me read those excerpts from the book and, and we touched on a couple of the other stories, there are some funny parts in the book. Yes. It's not like it's, it's one doom and gloom page after page after page. So if you think you want to avoid it because of that, that's, there's some, other stories in there. Yes. <laughs> it's a good read. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you.